So Money episode 1258, Rachel Pacheco, author of Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Lessons for New Managers. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. The cost of managing and firing a bad hire is five times their annual salary. So wow. it's this huge amount. And think about it, you know, think about for, for folks listening, when you've had a bad employee or an employee that hasn't done well, the amount of time, energy and resources that goes into managing that person is astronomical. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Managing people is the topic of conversation today. Managing people at work, and in life, when we are in relationships with other people, it requires a level of awareness and management. Our guest today is Rachel Pacheco. She's the author of the book, Bringing Up the Boss, who is an expert at helping startups solve their management and culture challenges. She's a former chief people officer and founding team executive at many startups. She's conducted research on management and works with CEOs and their managers to build skills necessary to navigate a rapid rapidly scaling organization. If you're working for a startup or you're thinking about up-leveling your career, becoming a manager, you want to listen to this conversation because Rachel has really important, timely advice on how to be the most effective manager at work, but also, as we discover, in many realms of your life. Rachel is also a management instructor at the Wharton School and the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. She speaks openly about her own mistakes as a manager. Here's Rachel Pacheco. Rachel Pacheco, welcome to So Money. And congratulations on your very new book, Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Lessons for New Managers. Thanks. It's so great to be here and be talking to you about the book. Yes. I mean, you come to this book with your own professional experience. You teach management at Wharton. You have a lot of stories from your professional and academic career to bring to this book, to offer to readers, but also your personal journey as well. Navigating the world of management uh, makes for a, a very uh, a, a rich book. And I have to say, you know, I don't really manage anybody uh, really like I don't have a you know an employee, let's say, in my life that I am responsible for grooming and managing by choice, by design. And we'll get to that in a second, because I think sometimes you should know yourself if you're not really up for the task, you should maybe not do that job. It's not everybody needs to be a manager. Um, but it's an interesting time for the book, Rachel. A lot of people are quitting their jobs, or at least they say they're going to quit. And I wonder, the boss is usually what you're trying to quit not always the job. Talk about that, like how important it is to actually be a good manager because it is the bottom line for so many employees. If you are if you don't have a good relationship with your boss, you're out of there. You're not happy and you're going to quit. And that's costly for everybody. Yeah. And we're facing this so much right now with uh, what, you know, what you alluded to, the great resignation. People are quitting in, in, in droves, um, quitting, their, quitting their companies and to your point, really quitting their bosses. And so as managers, we have this outsized responsibility to make sure our employees are cared for, 
they feel motivated, they feel seen, and we're managing their burnout, especially during, you know, the past 18 months. So there, you know, managers right now have a ton of pressure on them to figure out how to retain their, their teams, keep them happy and manage their own sense of burnout, disillusionment, um, and manage their own bosses. Yeah, the pandemic has certainly added another layer of stress. And frankly, a lot of people are, as you point out, like it's an inflection point where we're reflecting on our lives, purpose of our careers, the purpose of our personal choices. Um, What else about now makes it important and urgent for a book like yours? There's a new generation of leaders and managers, you know, um, our our grandparents and parents uh, were a different generation of manager. What's what is required now of the job that we are increasingly demanding, perhaps that wasn't practiced before, but should, you know, I mean, I watch Mad Men. (laughs) I watch all those sort of shows and I'm like, well, that could never happen today. Um, Some of the office scenes, but tell us about why now. One of the reasons I wrote this book was I was a chief people officer in a healthcare, quickly growing healthcare startup. And I realized that my, my managers weren't equipped to the task. So I set out to find a book that spoke to the challenges that these managers faced and helped them kind of upskill really quickly. And what I found to your point was that most of the management books were written, you know, 25, 30 years ago um, and spoke to a really different time and a really different context from what we're facing now. Managers now have the responsibility of addressing and reckoning the social change and the, you know, the racial justice that has really come to the forefront, um, you know, in the last couple of years. Managers also have a responsibility now, um, especially with the millennial group, to help their team members find meaning in their work. We look to work and, and we look for it as a sense of purpose and as a sense of meaning. So now managers aren't just delegating tasks and helping you manage your time. They're also helping you find your purpose and helping you find your path. Mm-hmm. And then just in the last year, again, managers are helping people manage their personal lives in terms of burnout and work-life balance and in hybrid work. So we really need, you know, which is why I wrote the book. We really needed a book that spoke to the challenges of today and the requirements and the demands um, that, that the workforce is looking for in their managers. I would imagine it's really hard to reconcile making the work meaningful for your employees, but also answering to your shareholders. You want to take care of your team first, right? You want to take care of your employees first and not be so bottom line driven. But how do you square that with so much pressure from both ends? I think managers have a in some ways an even harder job now because their job is just far more demanding from both angles. We have this assumption that to be a great manager means it costs the company a lot of money or that, you know, the way to keep people happy is to throw a lot of resources, additional compensation at them. And what we often fail to recognize is that our team members are motivated by a whole bunch of different things and that those things often don't cost a lot of money. (laughs) So we might have a team member that's really motivated by a sense of learning or a sense of community So what I often tell folks is that think about how your team members are motivated, what drives them, uh, and manage to those unique um, characteristics and unique dynamics of your team. 
I'd say the second thing too is good management directly speaks to the bottom line of an organization. Uh, I saw a statistic recently that, um, and I think this was from Amazon, but I'm not 100% uh, correct if, if my memory serves me right, that the cost of managing and firing a bad hire is five times their annual salary. So wow. it's this huge amount. And think about it, you know, think about for, for folks listening, when you've had a bad employee or an employee that hasn't done well, the amount of time, energy, and resources that goes into managing that person is astronomical. Uh, so if we can hire well, if we can manage people well, if we can keep them happy, uh, that's great for the employees, that's great for the managers, and it's great for the, the shareholders and the organization overall. Managers should empower their team, right, to come to them with what meaningful means, because what me what is meaningful to me is difficult, different than maybe my colleague. I want more flexible time. My colleague might want a different project. So what can employees do to, as you say, manage up? You write about that in your book. The two biggest things, I think, to, to managing up well, um, number one, employees can think about what can I do to make my boss's job easier? What can I do to make my boss more successful? And that does a couple things. First, it puts you in the mindset of being proactive, being solution-oriented, and not just creating problems. Because all of a sudden, you're going to your boss with, um, you know, with ideas and suggestions and solutions, as opposed to looking to your boss um, just, to, just to correct problems and fix things. The second thing it does is it helps you develop the skills, the strategic thinking skills, the higher level thinking skills that's going to get you to the position of being a boss one day as well. So that's the first thing. The second thing in terms of managing up is identifying and owning your own skill development. So a lot of times employees look to their managers, look to their bosses to tell them how to develop and how to grow. And that's a huge amount of responsibility on the manager and the manager might not know what the employee needs or wants um, from, a, from a skill perspective. So I work to coach um, managers to coach their employees to, to, to own their own development and identify, hey, I want to be a, a sales manager in three years. Here are the skills I want to develop. How can you, manager, help me develop those skills? How can, how can we work together for, for me to build those skills? So it really puts the employee in the driver's seat of their own development. And it becomes super empowering, exciting, and motivating for these employees. What's the most important skill for a manager, you think? Is it empathy? Is it, if, you, if you're listening and you're wondering if you've got it, you've got what it takes. I mean, maybe you don't have all of the things yet because of course, even the best of managers are still learning, but what, what at the core of it, what is, what is the best signal that you're ready for this task? I would say the best or the most important skill for managing, it actually comes from a piece of advice that someone gave me around dating. The best skill uh, to build first and foremost, when you're a manager or aspiring to be a manager is setting clear expectations with your team members. It's really, really simple and it feels straightforward, like we should all do it, but it's actually really hard. And so if, um, you know, if I was on a 
desert island and someone said, what's the one management skill you could bring? It's be really clear in the expectations you have of your team members. Because often we think our team members know what we want from them, but they don't. And they have no idea, especially if they're more junior um, or haven't done the role before. And so as a manager, we need to explain the vision and the end goal of an activity. We need to explain what good looks like, set the timing, um, and give examples of what's good. And if, if all managers did that, <laughs> our, you know, the, the entire population of managers would be far better than they are now because we just don't do it enough. There's that famous line on 30 Rock, Tracy Morgan's character, Tracy Jordan, is yelling at his, I guess, I don't know, his intern or his assistant, like, anticipate me, you know, like, why don't I have my French fries yet? Um, and we always joke about that because you're right. I mean, we we falsely think that people should be reading our minds and they're not. And I think to add on to what you're saying, and this is from your book, is like establish those expectations, but provide the feedback frequently because in your mind, you might change expectations and you haven't communicated that to your team. And that might be a trip up as well. Totally. And I would add, um, a lot of times what we do is we think we're setting expectations. So we say something like, hey, team member, my expectation is for you to be proactive. And then we let them go try to think about what proactive might mean to us. Instead of saying, proactive means these things in my mind. And this is how I want you to be proactive. So sometimes we get there about halfway and we think we're setting expectations, but we could be even clearer in terms of what we want and what we need. So I'm good at many things. Being someone's boss is not one of them. I'm the first to admit. I don't know. I think I overcompensate on the friend in the friend department. I, I try to be very inviting and very welcoming. And then if um, someone doesn't perform a task well, like I don't know where to go from there because I, I have been so nice. I feel like I'm doing a, I'm doing a 180 and being, you did this wrong. And so for me, feedback was the ultimate pain point as someone's manager. And you write about this in your book because I think I'm not alone in this. And this is a huge pain point for a lot of managers is how to give feedback where you're not overcritical, that everybody leaves feeling good about the, the meeting. And I, I'll give you one example of maybe how this could work well is I, I interviewed John Paul DeJoria, who is the founder of, John, of Paul Mitchell, you know, that huge mm -hmm. beauty company. He also owns Patron Tequila. He's a billionaire times two. I had the opportunity to follow him around for a couple of days for a, a, an old life. In an old life, I was a TV host. And he said, the key to giving feedback is you want to be direct, you want to be kind, and you want to end the meeting on a positive note. So make sure that that person's leaving your room, possibly feeling better than when they walked in, even though the criticism or the feedback was not great. You know, you don't obsess over the, the problem. You just sort of just state what went wrong. You talk about how you're going to correct it or how you'd like it to see corrected. And then you also like uplift them on their way out, which I thought was not something that you would think to do. Uh, but it, he says it works like a charm and he's got people working for him for many years. What would you say to that? Yeah, I, I, I love that ending. Um, what I always share is that constructive feedback done well is incredibly motivating because the individual now knows what they can change or what they can work on to become better at what they're doing. So, you know, to, to his point, someone leaves a feedback conversation and is, 
you know, inspired and energized and motivated to do better, to do better tomorrow, or to do to better, mm-hmm. to do better immediately. Um, and what happens is when we don't give feedback, people are left in the dark and it's really scary. It's scary to come into work every day and think, where do I stand? Does my boss think I'm doing a good job? Yeah. Does she think I'm doing a poor job? Like, where where am I? And then when they get feedback, you know, once every six months, it's kind of like, well, why, why is this coming now? Has this person been keeping this in for the last six months and hasn't been telling <laughs> where me? Where did this come from? Right. Where did this come from? And, and it's, it's really scary. Um, and I would say, you know, one thing you said about kind of this idea of, being nice and it being scary to then give feedback because we feel like we're being mean. I try to, I try to convince people or, or decouple the idea that feedback is mean. And, you know, and, and yeah. really that we're actually being mean if we're not telling people what they're, what, what they could be doing to get better. Because what ends up happening is you just kick the can down the road. And the worst case scenario is you're nice for a year and at the end of the year, the person has not performed up to standards and mm. you have to let them go. And then who's mean, right? So it's this idea of like, as a manager, it's your responsibility to give mm. someone feedback because you could really harm their career, their long-term career yeah. trajectory, if you're not giving them that honest, constructive, concise, precise feedback right when it happens. You got to trust that it's coming from a good place. And as I'm hearing you speak, Rachel, I mean, I can't help but think how much this advice, yes, pertains to our careers and as managers in a professional realm, but also all the other relationships that we may have outside of work where there is a power dynamic. Giving feedback to your partner in your relationship, super critical. Setting expectations. You talked about dating, you know, setting expectations with any relationship, whether it's, you know, your babysitter, your sister-in-law, you know, on how you're going to organize the family reunion. I mean, all these um, scenarios in our lives require effective management. And and did you think about that as you're writing the book? Like this is actually a life skill book. I did. And the book actually started as a blog which was really fun because I got a lot of feedback along the way. And um, the most fun feedback I would get would be people writing in and saying, this just happened with, with my spouse and I, or, you know, you talk about job crafting, but what about marriage crafting and, you know, and things like that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's really about, to your point, it's really about managing relationships, whether those mm-hmm. relationships are in the office, whether they're at home, um, whether in, they're in a social setting. Um, it's how do we effectively effectively manage relationships and, and manage ourselves. Sticking with expectations here for just a second, the difference between micromanaging and being hands-off is vast, both extreme. What's the way, the best way to strike that balance? I would say a lot of new managers, one of their biggest fear um, and why they don't set expectations is because they're afraid of being a micromanager. We've all worked for micromanagers in the past and it's, it's terrible, right? It's really disempowering. It's demotivating. The distinction I make is micromanagers tell you every, tell you and, and, and guide you every step of the way. So they're telling you how to do things how to get to an endpoint, and then um, you know directing you on that process. A great manager sets the end goal, sets the vision, tells you what good looks like, and then lets you figure out how to get there yourself. 
So research shows that um, when we let people kind of chart their own course to get, to, you know, to, to, to figure out how to finish a project or figure out how to, um, how to design a product or, or figure it out themselves, it's far more meaningful. So they get far more, you know, enjoyment and satisfaction. So that's really the difference. And that's really, really what we try to get to is this idea of set the end goal, set the vision, share what's good and be there to help along the way if needed, but let your team member figure out how to get there versus mm-hmm. micromanaging is telling them how to get there every step of the way. There's a great saying at Red Ventures, the parent company to CNET, where I'm working currently as editor at large. Um, they have many uh, tenets, but one of them, which I love, is everything is written in pencil. Mm. When I was onboarding, we broke into groups and that was the one tenant that our little group had to sort of explain in our own words, like what we thought it meant. And I think to me, it meant that, well, it means sort of many things, right? Many good things. But one is that we we foster an environment here that allows for experimentation. And with that, we assume failure. Failing is healthy. It's important. It's part of the journey. And I really thought that that was a great thing to say very boldly. It's so important to be able to fail. And I would say the best thing that a manager can do to allow their team members to to fail and make mistakes is to be a role model. So a lot of times, especially new managers, there's this thought or this self-expectation that I'm a manager I should know everything now. I should know the answer to every employee question. I should know the answer to every question asked about the company. You know, I'm not allowed to fail. And so for a manager to say, hey, I don't know the answer to this, or I messed up. Like I told you guys one thing and I I should have gone a different path. That's incredibly powerful because A, it takes a lot of pressure off of you as a manager to be perfect. Um, and you know, people can smell BS from a mile, you know, a mile away and and, and people know if you're making things up. So it takes the pressure off of you to be perfect. And it shows your employees that failing, making mistakes, not knowing the answer is okay. And it's better to ask for help, um, or to say you don't know or, or, or to fail and, and admit that failure than to, um, you know, than to not. So I think it's, it's, really powerful being a role model yeah. of failure. It strangely makes you more confident, I think, in your capabilities. I remember I had this very difficult job anchoring and a local newscast and very nervous every day. And then I went into the bathroom one day and I was, you know, doing my breathing exercises or whatever I was doing and uh, lighting my candles, uh, praying. The like head anchor, right, of like New York City was in there teasing her hair or whatever she was doing. And she was very nice to me. And she said, hi, Ari. I said, hello. I know who you are. She's like, how's your day going? I said, oh, it's okay. I totally, you know, flubbed on the prompter live, you know. She goes, I fail every day. I mess up at least once a day. And this is the head anchor. So I went back to the office feeling a lot better, a pep in my step, you know. And it was weeks later, a colleague said to me, you know, you seem really calm, Farnoosh. Like, why are you so chill, relaxed, you know? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I figured out that I can screw up and still be successful, you know, back in that bathroom. So important just to just to say, I agree with you. Like I've experienced this in my life, like knowing that failure is an option 
makes you probably better at your job. It's super liberating. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh my okay, God, I'm going to like it. Nothing like, you know, you it's, it's a privilege to feel like I can fail and, and still maybe have my job. Right. You can laugh at yourself and keep, you know, keep, keep moving forward. Rachel, before we go, uh, we have a few minutes left. I want to hear about your best and worst moment as a manager or being managed. Oh boy, that's such a hard question, and and, and one that I I haven't I haven't gotten before. The, the the moments that stick out in my mind from kind of the, the worst moments are when I've had to let someone go, and realize that a lot of it was because of me, my fault. You know, this feeling like I failed this person. I was a terrible manager. I didn't give them the tools they needed. I didn't give them the resources they needed. And that's why I'm now in this position of letting them go. And that that just feels miserable every time. Um, mm-hmm. And luckily over time, as you get, you know, get to be a better manager, those, those situations um, happen less frequently, but that sticks in my mind. You know, there's a couple early management experiences where I was having a conversation with someone and it was like, this is, this is completely my fault. Um, yeah. and, and those are really, really hard. Um, it's not you, it's me. Right. That's a- <laughs> totally. And I, I really mean it. It's true. Believe me, it is me. Um, and I would say the best, oh, the best ones, you know, are, um, those individuals that you manage, you know, there's a handful of people that I've managed that I'm still really close with. And they still come to me for career advice or work advice or life advice because that bond, especially when someone's early in their career, can be really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of helps someone chart their path early on. And uh, those are my favorite ones where where you're like, oh, I, I impacted someone's life in a positive way. And, and, yes. and that just means so much. And I think part of the reason why I wrote this book is... Um, to allow people to have more of those experiences because it is such a, a privilege to be in the role of a manager. Um, mm. And, you know, and I wanted to help people have, have those experiences where they, they really feel like they can impact others. Rachel Pacheco, thank you so much. The book is called Bringing Up the Boss. Excellent book if you are thinking about or currently in a management position. But like we said, like we've discussed for 30 minutes here, transcends all sorts of relationships and power dynamics. I think this advice is good all around. Rachel, thank you so much for writing the book, for joining us. And congrats again. Thanks so much, Farnoosh. It was great to be here. Thank you to Rachel for joining us. Our book again is called Bringing Up the Boss. It's available everywhere. It came out earlier this summer. Highly recommended if you're looking to up-level your career this year and move up to management. Coming up on Wednesday, a conversation with married couple Nate and Kaylee Klemp. Their book, The 80-80 Marriage, a new model for a happier, stronger relationship and why trying to reach 50-50 equality in your marriage is a losing game. Stay tuned for that. Thanks for sharing part of your day with me. And I hope your day is so money.